Welcome back to Down the Rabbit Hole. I'm Sarah. And I'm William. And I'm Kate. And Kate is back with us to talk about purity culture. I will provide just that content warning. We're talking about purity culture. So it's going to jump down a whole bunch of rabbit holes. So remember to take care of yourself when you need to and pause the recording and come back if that is what makes sense to you. So to start us off, fun question for today. Do you have any brand loyalties? I don't have many. Uh, Oreos. Don't give me an off-brand Oreo. Like, unless it's like a children's party. Don't. No off-brand Oreos. Um, Why is it? Wait, wait, wait. Why is it acceptable at a children's party? So, you know, those like packs of cookies that are like the chocolate cookie that look like Oreos and the like vanilla that look like golden Oreos. And it's, but it's like cheap and you buy it at Walmart and it's big because you're trying to feed a bunch of kids. Like, I get the like practicality to needing like the big snack pack of thing. Right. Um, And kids don't care. So, but you would still eat it. Yeah, it's at a kid's party. I'm going to eat the birthday cake and the cookies that are provided. Okay, okay, okay. Um, but otherwise, Oreos forever. Cheez-Its, off-brand Cheez-Its are disgusting. And don't get me started on cheese nips. Gross. Those are uh, horrible. Yeah. I think those are my two, like, strongest. I don't know that I have any other, like, brand loyalty as far as, like, non-food products go. What about beverages? Like Coke? Sure. I mean, yeah, I like an I like an on brand. Oh, well, I'll tell you, I don't I don't do Pepsi products. Mm. Uh, if at all possible. Like at the table, like when you go to a restaurant and they're like, Oh, we have Pepsi products, is it fine? I'd be like, No, I'll get water or uh, I'll get sweet tea. Like, no thanks. I do love a Mountain Dew though. Okay. <laughs> I would just agree with you that Pepsi products are garbage, but Mountain Dew, specifically Mountain Dew Baja Blast from Taco Bell, well, is my fave. It's a special treat. It is a special treat. Okay, thanks. I just had that one follow-up question. Uh, Kate, what about you? Most of mine also seem to be food-related. Um, the specific one that comes to mind is potato chips in general, but specifically Doritos. I do not want an off-brand Dorito. I don't care what flavor it is. I don't want an off-brand. Give me Doritos or give me nothing. I will also second the cheese it, cheese it all the way. Nothing, nothing subpar. I'm trying to think if there's like not anything food related. I really can't think of anything. I mean, I'm one of those Apple loyalists, but I'm not like a brand loyalist to Apple because I have non-Apple products. So I wouldn't really count that. That's what I was just Um, thinking was that I do have a Samsung loyalty for my phone. I don't like Apple products generally. Uh, and I have had a Samsung since my first cell phone uh, since I was 15. So we're a whole like decade and a half later, still rocking the Samsungs. That's impressive. Have you only had Samsung cell phones? Mm-hmm. Yep. So how did you skip the Nokia generation though? Oh, good question. My first okay. one was a Samsung flip phone. It was silver. It had uh, a black strip on the front where like if you got the better version, it would have been a screen. But mine was blacked out and said Samsung on it. I had that one, too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think food is my my main one. I'm not going to call myself an Apple loyalist because I will venture out of that brand if I need to. Ooh, ooh. I'm a brand loyalist when it comes to art supplies. Do not give me Rose Art or whatever it was from from Walmart. Like, no, I want Crayola. No, I want Sharpie. I don't want knockoff art supplies. That's valid. Unfortunately, it gets really expensive when you try and go to art school, which is why I didn't finish art school. So good to know. Yeah. Sarah? Yeah. I'm going to third the Cheez Its because they're just the best. But I think my biggest brand loyalty is my running shoes. There's one, one brand, specifically one pair that I will only run in. And I won't use any other ones. You're not and they are. The class. <laughs> they are the Sacconi Canvaras. They are amazing. They like fit my foot so perfectly. They're the only pair of shoes that don't hurt my feet when I go running. I love them. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. Never heard of them. No, yeah. It's because mm-hmm. I don't run, maybe. But <laughs> I was going to say, neither of y'all run. <laughs> I'm like, Nike, yeah, sure. But no, oh, here's a terrible story about Nike. So I, when I first started running, I bought their freeform shoes, which were so comfortable. They were so comfortable. But I went running in them and my feet would bleed every time I ran. It was terrible. And, and I was like, what running. the heck? Yeah, this says something more about the running part and less about the shoe part. For well, me. I took them back and found different shoes and my feet don't do that. But You took your bloody shoes back? Was, yeah. uh, they said, keep them, but you can have a refund. <laughs> they All were right. like, what's wrong with them? And I was like, literally, there's blood in there. I can't do it. Anyways. This is going to sound a little pretentious, but I do have, it's not so much of a strong brand loyalty, but I really like Chubby's shorts. Um, like not I that I wouldn't that venture out. It's a brand. Um, they're like shorter. Um, but I do like their shorts uh, and swim trunks. Not a, not a hardcore like loyalty that I don't own other things, but I do have a lot of them. I think that's just an appreciation, not a loyalty. I guess this is true. Way to check me on my definitions. <laughs> um, uh, so. Yeah, other than that, though, I don't think there's any, like, toothpaste or toilet paper. I know a lot of people have that very strong opinions on... Well, I do their- only get one kind of toilet paper. So, you know... I get really upset if I don't if they don't have it, which during a pandemic has been really hard to like maintain a supply. The more you know. The more you know. Brand loyalty is not a sponsored video, audio, podcast, whatever, episode. But I mean like Spotify if you want to, like we're here. Yeah, many if anybody wants to pay me to I told you we gotta turn on the ads for that. All right. Jumping right into purity culture. We all have different concepts of what that might mean. So when when someone says purity culture to you, what are the first things that come to mind? I think that I have two main thoughts first. The first being abstinence-only education for sex education and then religious or like evangelical Christianity, I think is the two things that kind of get in my head first yeah i would agree with those and a just like a higher expectation of women to act a certain way or not act a certain way yeah i think i think of those i think of sex negative shame-based culture that's what i think where everything like pretty much anything that you can think of is tied back to your like sexual purity right so i think that it's okay that we all have different perspectives on it and different approaches to this conversation um we're all from different places in the country and have different levels of experience with religion but we all went to public school oh you went to public school there right did i william you did a little bit. I feel like you were, I feel like you're like a trifecta kid where you had uh, yeah. some private Home school. school, private school and, and public school. Yeah, that's a rarity. All right. So I think a lot of our first exposure to purity culture happens in school, actually. Maybe not for everyone, uh, but I think, Kate, to your point about abstinence only education, that's when it like picks up and becomes blatant maybe is the right word. Like, I think there's maybe a lot of like passive, like culture in your home, culture in your church stuff that you pick up before then. But I think when it becomes like super blatant and direct is like when you start entering the school system and have this like formal education that looking back is somewhat surprising at how traumatizing some of the messages are. Well, that's why I was, I'm glad you said traumatizing because I was going to push back a little bit in that like purity culture starts so much earlier in that like 
And again, I'm coming from that like Christian religious background. So I think like I can only speak to my experience, but it was even like girls can't wear short shorts because boys are going to think about them. And we were taught like if we went on like camping trips with the church or something, like we weren't allowed to wear PJs because then the boys would think about us in bed and we need to protect the boys. And like, that's not specifically about like sex ed or anything, but it was very much at an early age. Don't let your shoulders show because then boys might think about you and that's bad. I think a lot of those early trips and stuff are, we had uh, no purple rules. Um, Girls are red, boys are blue, never make purple. Um, So like you couldn't be alone together. You couldn't be, there were, there were even like certain things where like you couldn't just like couldn't be in the same spaces um, as groups. Um, like you had like boys time at the lake and girls time at the lake. Right. And so that, that gender delineation, it's like also like just a total erasure of queer kids, um, or like intentional ignorance of queerness because like there were some people was like, I don't want to make purple. Let's go deep blue, you know, but Hey, whatever. But yeah, no, I think a lot of those messages, they start early. Um, and you, I think purity culture is more than sex specifically. Like, I think it has to do with our messages about masturbation. It has to do with messages about um, gender roles often. I think that there is some delineation between purity culture and patriarchy. Um, I don't think that those are the same personally. So I think that there is some delineation there. But I think purity culture upholds patriarchy. Um, and, and that patriarchy uses purity culture as a tool to further subjugate and control women in particular. Absolutely. I don't know where I'm going to go with that, but, it, but like, it's just uh, that was worded so well. Okay. Do you have thoughts? So many. I do. I mean, I do think that I think that I can maybe bring an interesting take to this because I grew up in in South Central Kansas. I grew up in the Bible Belt, but I also grew up really non-religious. So I didn't get those really early exposures that y'all are talking about. I did get the like kind of very abrupt kind of shameful tone to sex education when I got to high school for like abstinence only education. And so I don't think I even heard the term purity culture until I probably got to high school. And it was, so it was a very different introduction to like that lane of thinking, Um, especially being lucky enough to come to be raised by liberal parents. Like that was not the tone in our house. Mm. So it was very different. And I think that it was like very counterintuitive to what I was like anticipating to be taught. But then it was like rampant after I got to high school. How so? I mean, I think that the first, it was probably within the first like nine weeks of my freshman year of high school. We are, we had a freshman year gym class that everybody had to take and they took us out of gym class into like a a sex education seminar, I guess you could call it. And I I just remember to William's point, like it was very traumatizing. It was very much shame based. And like, I remember it wasn't verbatim, but like literally the message they were giving um, everyone, it was a mix. It was, it was gender mixed, um, was you basically sleep with everybody that your partner sleeps with. So if you don't want to be a bad person, only sleep with one person ever. And that person needs to be your spouse. And it was all, all of course, there was also a very heteronormative kind of tone to it as well. And like, the, I remember distinctly, there was like this pyramid chart that they were trying to use to like display, like if you sleep with a person and they slept with a person, you slept with the person that they've slept with. <laughs> kind of thing it was very strange and abrupt my uh unfortunately gym cast for me was first thing in the morning freshman year so it's the first thing i got to do that day that is no way to start a morning <laughs> i i mean i remember those messages too and the, what it reminded me of and i know you brought this up when we were talking the other day but it's like if you have sex with somebody you're like a piece of chewed gum and the more people that chew this gum then you will not find a spouse because no one wants a chewed piece of gum and it's so i mean it's crazy that we used to say that but like we still say that 
to like it just looks different i think maybe some places still use the piece of gum who knows but um i was listening to crime junkies of course and they had elizabeth smart on there and she was talking about that and if you don't know her story i recommend going to listen to it if you are interested it was a really fascinating what she was saying was really fascinating not her story to be clear but she was kidnapped and you know, she had all of these messages told to her growing up. And so she was like, I just learned that because of this situation, I was, I had no worth. I had no value. And like, how dangerous is that to tell people? I'm sorry, going on a little rant, but it's like these purity culture messages are so harmful. And I think they really do that. That's, that's the scare tactic is to attack your worth. So our, our version of that was uh, we got to like, decorate and like color a heart uh, and then we had to crumble the heart up and then uh, the teacher or the facilitator read a story and every time you had sex with someone you had to rip part of the heart off that's and, aggressive yeah and uh, you know because you every time you have sex with someone you give them part of your heart and then you had to like try to put it back together but of course once you rip a paper 15 16 times like even taping it back together, it's not the same. Like, and that was the whole message is that like your sexual relationships make you a, they, they are an irredeemable is not the word, but like, you'll never be the same person again, that you'll never be whole again, that uh, there will still be pieces missing. Like these, these like deep, deep cuts of messages around being unworthy after you're sexually active, um, as opposed to, if you get married and have sex, then you can give them your whole heart, you know? But if you've already had sex with other people, then you can never give anyone your whole heart. And it's just, it's such a negative, harmful message that then cascades into a lot of other things about self-esteem and self-efficacy. And I, I think that it, it contributes to a lot of mental health problems including like suicide ideation when it comes to people who become sexually active voluntarily or not and there's no real it's really hard to walk that message back right like um, even like if you realize that that message was bogus like you it's hard to undo and unlearn that message once it's been ingrained in you well and when you were talking about how like you know, the message of we want to give, you should want to give your spouse your whole heart. It's, and maybe this is just something that clicked for me. And that's why I'm like, ah. but I'm like, it's so, uh, those messages, they just leave so much damage that they're, you know, it's just like, even the idea of wanting to give your spouse your whole self or your partner or whoever that looks like, or maybe, you know, whatever. If you have all of these harmful messages that you've internalized and have all of these struggles I don't know you know where I'm going with that like it's just interesting that it's like they're like give them your whole self but then they're chipping away at yourself I think it especially it, it sets a tone for an unhealthy relationship or a potentially abusive relationship like in any way you kind of frame it up if it tells someone you know a young person that their value is based in their whether they've had sex or or not then then that becomes their whole identity in a relationship. And that can be really problematic if you get into an unhealthy situation. I think for, you know, for anybody of anybody of any gender, it just sets up a lot of pitfalls that are just lead straight, I think, to like a place of unhealthy and not just unhealthy sexually, but just like unhealthy dynamics across the board. Yeah, I think it sets up, not only does it set up victimization, right? It sets up perpetration right. to say, now that we've had sex, no one else is going to want you. So you're mine. And it sets up the idea that like, oh, well, you were damaged when you came into this relationship. So I did you a favor. Um, right. And so I think it, 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 it sets up both sides of an unhealthy and potentially abusive relationship and well, and also victim blaming too like if she was drunk then that's on her because she wasn't maintaining that thing or like it's all on like in my situation where i heard all these messages of like it's our job and our duty to make sure that boys don't think sexual thoughts about me 
like that relieves them of any pressure of like I can just do what I want and then that's her fault y'all sidebar on that the recent ruling by the Minnesota Supreme Court that I cannot I'm so mad for those of you who don't know this is going to be a infuriating story so trigger warning pause if you need to Recently, the Minnesota Supreme Court ruled that uh, a man could not be charged with the rape because a woman voluntarily or consensually chose to get drunk. So she went out uh, to the bars and got drunk as uh, a legal adult is apt to do sometimes. And this dude assaulted her, sexually assaulted her, and was charged with rape and convicted an appeals court court held it up and the minnesota supreme court overturned it because she consensually got drunk what kind of sense does that make no and i am glad you brought it up because it may not have been like so explicitly said in other states but we still pretty much have that in so many different ways like this this was just stated explicitly and we should be mad about it because if it's, you know, it's been happening for so long and like people get away with it for stupid stuff like this all the time. And if it's still like now someone's feeling empowered to explicitly make that a thing, that's crazy to me. Yeah. And I think while purity culture often focus, I guess, is hyper focused on sex and sexuality, uh, I do think that it bleeds over into like teetotalism where you're shaming the usage of alcohol and shaming substance abusers because your body is a temple and like you have to keep yourself pure and all of these things. And if that's like your belief system, then that's totally fine, right? Like I think that you should, because I think the root of that your body is a temple message is that you have inherent worth, right? And you shouldn't do things to harm yourself. But I think that that message that like, God created you and you are to be loved and cherished, right? Gets twisted into these messages that are manipulative and oppressive and then result in you losing self-worth and potentially hating yourself, you know, depending on how your mindset goes. Um, So weaponizing that type of language and belief can be dangerous. I think that, 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 you know, unfortunately, we've seen how that can be dangerous. Like recently, there have been a lot of articles recently relating purity culture to the recent shootings in Atlanta that killed um, eight people total and six Asian women. And so, like, there's this direct link of this this person being told throughout their life that uh, they should resist temptation and they're they eliminated temptation by killing women. So I think that that kind of ties this into how some of these messages can really kind of, to your point, William, get twisted and warped from maybe their kind of, so to speak, purest intention and then devolve into this place of misogyny and patriarchy that really does lead to gender-based violence. Yeah, and I think that purity culture really contributes to our opposition to as a society our broad opposition and hatred of sex workers and you think about i've seen a lot of memes and articles lately that have talked about that have been framing other arguments that it's like of course a sex worker doesn't love you like they're doing a job right just like the person who cleans your house does a job just like your banker does a job like um, it, it's not, we don't have to equate sex to love. And I think that that's hard for a lot of people because again, a lot of religious messaging creates this culture that says these two things are inextricably linked. But I think you brought up Atlanta. And so I was thinking about how we view sex workers and how we spend a lot of time fetishizing sex workers, particularly in pornography and in movies and in video games and we spend a lot of time talking about how framing sex workers as like ill-fated women who just need to be rescued right and and i think that a lot of that has to do with our disproportionate view of sex as bad and that's why we don't 
give value to sex work or sex workers. Well, but it's and I think purity culture especially does a really bad job of of enforcing this message that sex is bad, sexual thoughts are bad. To your point earlier, William, masturbation is bad. But then all of that is supposed to suddenly change as soon as you get married. And so you're supposed to have this, you know, a very, for lack of a better word, hands-off approach to sex for years and years and years and years. And then as soon as you get married, you're supposed to immediately be comfortable with it and then and welcome it. And I, I saw that growing up as almost more of a problem. And it, it caused more issues, like, amongst my peers of of having a really kind of uncomfortable relationship with physical intimacy in a relationship. And I think that just sets up, you know, a a culture of, I lost my train of thought, so. No, but it is incredibly harmful because I remember one of my counselors as a young person, we were talking about this and she was like, yeah, I worked with this couple and like the wife could not, be intimate with the husband she would like have panic attacks and freak out because of these messages and it's kind of going back to like what i said earlier about like how it's strange that they're like protect your whole heart meanwhile they're chipping away at your heart with these harmful messages because then it becomes such a barrier and it's hard for our brain to like hear all these negative things about sex and sexuality and then it's like once you're married they're like, yeah, let's throw you bachelorette parties where we can buy you lingerie and you can celebrate all these things. And like, ooh, the honeymoon and you guys are going to have so much fun. And it's like, wait, <laughs> you know, I think like they build it up and it sounds great. And then you get there and it can be like, wait a minute. how What? And like your brain like doesn't fully compute it. And in our last episode, or one of our last episodes, Sarah, we talked about menstrual equity and how not preparing people who menstruate for menstruation and like not talking to them about it beforehand is dangerous. And I think that is very similar with sex is that people don't talk to their kids because it's uncomfortable. It's like an awkward conversation uh, because you don't start doing it until either after you already think it's happening, after you found porn on their computer, after you caught them in the bed with somebody else, right? Or it is just like a really washed over like birds and bees, like conversation full of euphemisms and like awkward things, right? And I think that that is the same here when we talk about purity culture, like you talking about someone who is not prepared for their wedding night um, and then the sex that might, that, might I might use might might happen because nobody is comfortable talking about it beforehand really like puts that person in an awkward and potentially unhealthy situation and I think when we you know there's all of this opposition to age-appropriate sex education uh, which starts early like it starts in kindergarten Um, pre-k even like teaching kids the biological names for their body parts teaching kids that like what consent is and what limits are right like those are all important messages that need to start earlier than we do but we have this concept of society like this is a parent's responsibility and yet parents don't have these conversations with their children and if they do how accurate are they or how biased are they like right and so um how are they perpetuating a culture that doesn't have a healthy view of sex and sexuality. I think it can be especially harmful too when when you do have an opportunity to have those conversations. I remember distinctly like the first kind of sex education that um, I was introduced to in public school in Kansas was more of one of those conversations around like, this is what puberty's like. And it was fourth grade and they split the boys and the girls up and parents were encouraged to attend with their children if they could to try and avoid some of that awkwardness to encourage conversations at home. And I remember when my mom went with me and the like little film that we watched about puberty and menstruation and uh, sex and all those things was literally the same video she had watched as a child. So it was 30 years old plus at the time. And she was just, she was angry. She was like, what, why, what? 
And she still talks about it to this day. Like if I bring it up, she'll go on a rant about it because she's still so angry about it. And it happened when I was in fourth grade. Uh, And I think that that was one of the things that set the tone for my education about stuff like that is that she realized I wasn't going to get anything that was really valuable from school. And it really, I think it really made the difference. And I could see the difference that I experienced versus the difference that like my friends and my peers were experiencing from either not getting it at home at all or getting this very like watered down kind of birds and bees stork kind of story. Yeah. And I think that purity, purity culture plays into that, like gender separation when it comes to lessons like that. Right. And then you have boys who don't understand how girls bodies works and girls who don't understand how boys bodies work and certainly no, um, at least uh, in when we were growing up, no recognition or acknowledgement of gender non-binary people. Um, and so, yeah. Uh, and I think that once because i i remember a fifth grade mine was in fifth grade um the puberty video and i remember in middle school they we they put they brought us all together all the students but it was a slideshow of stis right like that it was this very traumatic slideshow that i think every public school student sees probably of this is what's going to happen if you have sex you're going to get an sti right and like occasionally it might be like oh unless you use a condom but generally it was like you're gonna get an sti or you're gonna get pregnant um and there was no real conversation around contraceptives and protection that's because we don't because a a strict purity culture approach to these things which these abstinence only education things do don't rely on harm reduction at all um, which are like public health proven models that reduce teen pregnancy they reduce abortion rates they reduce sti rates like but we don't want to listen to science because we're so ingrained in this purity culture and this idea that teaching kids about sex is going to make them want to have sex it's like kids already want to have sex that's why they're having sex and getting pregnant and getting stis so we've got to find a better way you know it just reminds me of Mean Girls. <laughs> if you have sex, you're going to get pregnant and die. <laughs> and that, you know, as like a young person, I'm like, this is so outrageous. But I'm like, no, that's literally what they did. Right. It's not far off yeah. from <laughs> what the actual messages were. No, and it's uh, crazy to me, to your point, like we have all these proven models. And I, but like, it's really frustrating to me that it's like, we have to reduce abortions like we have to do it, but they won't follow the things that actually helps people plan pregnancies. You know what I mean? It's just very frustrating to me. No, I think that that absolutely I think personally, and this is maybe just my perspective, that that has a heavier hand in patriarchy and controlling women, women's bodies as and maybe less in purity culture. I think that there certainly it's like a muddy link, right? But but I do think that that is a problem that's certainly linked to how we approach education and how we don't teach people about their bodies because you shouldn't be curious about your your body. Um, I also think that it's like when young kids they start discovering their body and you like parents start punishing them for touching themselves it's like they're just discovering right like they're and the the number of grown particularly women uh, or, or people with vaginas that haven't looked at their vagina like i haven't like seen it or touched it it's just it's wild to me but it's because that purity culture has made that so taboo. It's made it so uncomfortable for them to touch or explore or look at parts of their own body. Right. I think even, I think even understand their own body. Um, I think I, 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 I took a women's history class and women's psychology class in college. And I remember we were talking about like the psychological and biological kind of connection and we went through this whole thing around like this you know this is women's basically you know uh feminine biology what is that called female anatomy and like there are so many things that can go wrong with that thing and 
And I remember my classmate remarking like, women have to go through so much or people with uteruses have to go through so much. And we don't even always kind of fully understand how things work because we're not taught how it works and we're not taught. And, and I think that we as a whole is everybody. I mean, I, I distinctly remember there was a, that meme a few years ago of a guy telling women to hold their periods because it, it was the same as going to the bathroom and going to pee. And just like, we have such strong feelings about bodies and body parts that we can't even understand how it works on a basic biological level. So like, you have to, it's, it's almost just like shame on top of shame on top of shame. Yeah. And I think purity culture in its purest form, (laughs) purest purity culture. Anyway, um, shames all genders equally, but I think because we live in such a patriarchal society that that's where we get this skew. But I think, you know, there, there's a lot of shame in purity culture around boys masturbating, right? There's a lot of shame around, there's a lot of like heteronormativity and like homophobia that gets placed in this purity culture model. Um, But patriarchy, because it is what uses purity culture as a tool, um, overrides. And so you have, at least in our, in our like collective consciousness, we think that boys masturbate more than girls. Um, And we also think that it's more okay and more normal. And so I think that we also understand the male orgasm more because let's be honest, it's just like easier and like less complex, but also because of the bias in research that we talked about a few episodes ago and gender bias, but there's, a lot of sex is focused on men, right? And, and and the male orgasm and not female orgasm because purity culture, I mean, one, patriarchy, right? So male being the primary thing. But two, because purity culture um, really demonizes pleasure, uh, sexual pleasure, right? It's, it's sex is uh, utilitarian at best, unless you, you might get some people to concede that their pleasure because of like like once you're married there should be pleasure right that pleasure brings your you and your spouse together in like a unifying whatever um but it really makes sex more utilitarian less about pleasure and shames pleasure and so you end up with this orgasm gap that uh a lot of researchers are starting to talk about now but thoughts feelings on the orgasm gap well, I'm, I can say lots about it. I mean, I think that like when we talked about porn, like I think that you know, I remember mentioning that if a feature film has represents a female orgasm, it's automatically rated R or at least this. I mean, that was at least a few years ago. I don't know if that's changed, but um, it's even this depiction of female pleasure is so um, taboo that I think that one of the reasons, one of the ways that that patriarchy can really skew purity culture in particular is that it demonizes women for being sexual. And I think it does that to, to all genders and to all sexual experiences to some level. But I think that because it's so rooted in patriarchy and misogyny and heteronormative kind of behavior that it is especially harmful to women. And then I think that if you really looked at that, it would just compound as the identities got more complex. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it, I mean, it totally makes sense. I think it's, I, there's a lot of things that run through my mind when we start talking about this. And I think, you know, again, coming from my background, it was still even taught like in that, that Christian culture that sex is to please your partner or your spouse when you get married and it's to make babies and that is it and so it's just like feeding into that orgasm gap and it's in so many different ways because that's what we're taught and then again going back to like it being the woman's fault if a man thinks sexual thoughts like sex is for him and so that's what the boys learned in that and it's just I don't know I think it's also what this concept, this this like importance we put on sex and not that it's not important, um, but it's also what made people try to find loopholes, right? Like, oh, well, I can have oral sex and I'm still a virgin or we can have anal sex and it doesn't really count. 
right? So you have these people putting themselves in sexual positions uh, because they... Um, oh. uh-huh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was unintentional. My bad. <laughs> um, anyway, sexual situations that... Uh, but I think they're finding a loophole because there's there's also purity culture puts this hyper focus on virginity uh, because that's when you're pure and like right and so then you you yeah you have people trying to find like loopholes because they they understand that the intimacy is important but they don't want to have sex particularly vaginal sex because that is what rips your worth apart. Yeah, I think that the the connection to virginity is really problematic because I think I mean I I kind of am of the, of the opinion that virginity is a social construct entirely, and I think that that's even there's even like maybe newer biological research that's like all this discussion about the hymen is just kind of pointless. Um, but I think that it does really there's a really strong connection between whether someone's a virgin or not and how they're treated in a relationship. And, you know, your damaged goods. And I think that that can really set the tone for power over you. It's also a point of predation, right? It's it's something that predators look for because they're like the purest and the the perpetrator wants to... I don't like the term deflower or de-virginize them, but like... Um, wants they to, want to pop- conquer them ultimately that yes yes uh going back to purity culture's homophobia i think you have uh a lot of people who particularly for men right who have this like fear of exploring their bodies and you say william how can you like your sexual anatomy is external right it's like okay but you have a lot of people who don't understand that like the prostate is like a pleasure point for men and they are like super opposed and super scared of um, exploring that because of this homophobia, because of this, like, because also that concept of virginity is about being uh, penetrated. It's like, you don't think of men's virginity in the same way. Um, And so until you talk about anal sex and of course that makes you gay and like that that is that you're being penetrated so you're more feminine or and so it's this this whole cascade of thoughts around purity culture and being violated and 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 its connection to like men being seen as feminine which of course harmful masculinity overrides and says like that's not what we're supposed to do and so Purity culture is connected directly to um, homophobia and the restriction of pleasure for men as well. That was my only point. Thanks for the Just rant. so much shame all over the place. Yeah, and it's hard to undo because because it's it's weird because simultaneously our culture embraces like a sex sells mm-hmm. kind of commercial approach to things, right? Um, and so... It's weird that in our personal lives, we still, a lot of people, not everyone, um, but a lot of people still harbor these uh, ideas of purity and purity culture. And then look at people who aren't and like slut shame them and and then justify abuse that they experience, right? Like the abuse of sex workers or even people who aren't sex workers, but who aren't virgins say, well, that's what you get. And that's just terrible to say that like someone deserves abuse or um was asking for it because they were wearing short shorts or they were wearing or they had had sex before or they just didn't because because they've had sex before they don't they no longer have the autonomy to give consent right but that's that's a lot of the messaging and the thing about it is a lot of it's not explicit a lot of it's implicit and the way that the messaging is done. And um, I mean, certainly some of it is explicit, I guess. Well, yeah, but like I w- going back to earlier, you know, the messages start so young and it's in a, so much of a lot of messaging about like everything that it is not explicit. And it also, all of those complexities 
make any form of healing process so difficult. Yeah. Because you have to pick apart each and everything and that can be really painful. And it's so deeply rooted and embedded in us that that process can be overwhelming. And again, going back to what I was saying earlier, like Elizabeth Smart talks a lot about this because she's much, you know, one thing she said in the podcast is like pointing out how often sexual violence specifically happens to women. And like, it's just so rampant in our culture. And again, that healing process is so hard because of a lot of those messaging. I don't know where I'm going with this, but like, it's just a lot and it's really overwhelming and it affects so much is where I'm going with that. Sarah, that kind of makes me think of something. So you're a parent out of the three of us. You're the only parent in the space right now. How do you approach having these conversations with your kids or how do you approach, you know, a lot, you know, you have a five-year-old almost almost five-year-old and that's i think that that's when a lot of the education to start about like their bodies and like using the proper names and stuff um but that's when a lot of people are like no they're too young we've got to preserve them until like whatever um so how do you like kind of work through like the the culture and education that you grew up in that that your husband grew up in and decide how to have these conversations with your kids it's hard because we we try to navigate it in a very healthy and informed way using sex positive families again. Love them. But, you know, when we do start, we have, we started having these conversations maybe at three or four. Like, if you don't want to hug anyone, you don't have to hug anyone. If you don't want someone to like share this toy, like you should give your consent because it's your toy. But that, I think the hardest part, like those conversations are easy. I think that he's receptive. And again, this is only one two kids two kids chloe's conversations look different but so he is like the young one is specifically one child right but the hardest part is the people around us because that's such a different messaging like oh i just want to run like run and hug this kid or i just like he needs to learn how to share and like balancing that because he does have to learn how to share because it's hard and so i think like balancing I don't know where I'm going with all this, to be honest with you, but balancing the world's messages and wanting to to go into a healthy person who is knowledgeable about things is incredibly difficult. And I think a lot of it is even like us being open and like, ooh, this situation did seem hard. Why was it hard to give your consent? Or why was it hard for you to ask my son for his consent? You know, and just being open and honest is the way we're going. I love that. And I think that one of the things, and I'm not saying you do this, but one of the things that I believe is important is to, is to be a resource um, for your kid and be open to any question. And we've talked about this on the podcast before about like telling your kids that they can come to you for anything. And then when a kid goes to their parent, the parent gets mad or like shuts down that can be harmful and, and, and shows to them in a, in, in a way that says this is not an appropriate thing to talk about, or this is not a topic that I can seek help on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that being able to um, have those open conversations with your kids are great. And I think that as hard as it might be, one of the the things that always, it doesn't confuse me because I do understand it, but when a child approaches the parent of a different gender, and says, I have this question about my body or like these, you know, what is this? And that different gendered parent says, ask the other parent. So like a little boy goes to mom and says, mom, I have a question about my penis. And mom says, ask your dad and vice versa with a little girl asking her dad and dad being like, ask your mom. I think that 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 separation of gendered conversations can be harmful. I, I think that it's easier because obviously like dad who is a cisgendered male doesn't understand menstruation in the same way that mom who is a cisgendered female understands. Right. But dad should still be able to engage in that conversation in a healthy way. And I, and I think that that is also like that thinking of family in that way 
is also tied to purity culture in like a heteronormative way that like if you have two dads that they can't like raise a healthy daughter and that's not true either right two moms can raise a healthy son like those are things that can happen and they have to be able to talk single moms can raise boys single dads can raise girls like all of these different family dynamics can exist and do exist but i think that those parents need to be ready and be equipped to have conversations regardless of their child's gender this is an area where my dad like really shines but i mean yes to your point like he doesn't understand menstruation as well as my mom could but being able to have the experience that i did um my parents being divorced living on opposite sides of the country when i was a teenager talked and was like she's 16 she should get on birth control right and they asked me if I wanted to. And I said, yes. And my dad took me to my first Planned Parenthood appointment and was like with me in the waiting room and like was like fully supportive and was on board. And I remember the doctor was like, so are you, are you, because I mean like Planned Parenthood, at least at the time, like you could get an appointment without your parents' permission or knowledge. And they kind of discreetly ask like, what's up with that? And I was like, oh no, my dad's in the waiting room. Did you want to talk to him? And she's like, dad, dad, not mom. And I was like, yeah, dad. Mom knows if you want to call her, but she's just 1,500 miles away. And it was just a very kind of like normal thing for us. And it wasn't a big deal. But realizing later how rare it was, especially in the area of the country I grew up in, was pretty profound. And that was not my my peers' experience at all. Yeah, I think that's great. Well, we have been ranting about purity culture and uh, just meandering through this conversation all over the place. Certainly didn't hit on all the topics, but we enjoyed the conversation. Kate, thank you for joining us. Always a pleasure. Miss you in the office. You know what I'm saying? Not, not that any of us are in the office, but still. But before we close, should we do a quick round of hopes and dreams? Sarah, you're up first. My hope is that we change messaging first of all, but that we don't shame so much like that shame again, like we talked about earlier, is so hard to overcome even at like our healthiest. And so I think, I mean, really, I just want purity culture to go away. Like, because there's so many harmful things and so much shame and so much oppression and so much violence correlated with it. But I just hope future people and generations don't have to deal with that. Yeah, I think that's great. Kate, anything to add to hopes and dreams? I'm going to add that my hope is that if I'm ever a parent of a human child, um, that I just saw this really cool thing on TikTok where a mom does body talk with their six-year-old at night. And it's like body talk time during like a certain routine that they do at night. And I saw it and it was just, they were talking about uteruses. This kid was six and they like the six-year-old was explaining menstruation in a way that a six-year-old could. And I loved it. And I was like, my hope is that if I'm ever a parent of a human child, that I can carry on that kind of talk. Cause I think that that's one of the ways that we're going to dismantle purity culture and, and the ripples that it causes. So... Yeah, I just saw a TikTok that was a mom that was talking to, I mean, he was probably 14 and she was talking about how, how they've had body talks since he was little um, and it was very normal. And I was like, ah, oh, parenting goals. I think for me, I hope that people in tandem with Sarah's, like no more purity culture for people. I, I think I hope that people can reflect on their their youth and their lives and see where purity culture might be a source of trauma for them and that they can start uh, by start the healing journey by kind of naming and identifying that and uh, unpacking it so it's kind of my hope there hopefully all of our things come together like we'll find a star to wish on you know so this has been great Stay tuned next week for another rousing episode of Down the Rabbit Hole. And uh, we'll see you later. Bye. Bye.